Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Former President Trump calls for the immediate release of another document related to the FBI's Mar-a-Lago raid, the one that justified the search in the first place. Cheney versus Hageman in Wyoming today as voters cast ballots in the primary election. According to polls, the race is pretty one-sided. Encouraging students to use gender-neutral pronouns in schools and introducing lesson plans on gender theory. The Pennsylvania Education Department says it's to prevent bullying, but some are criticizing the policy. The World Economic Forum publishes a controversial article about solving online abuse. It calls for using AI technology to censor content online. Former President Donald Trump is calling for the immediate release of the affidavit that justified the FBI's raid. The document led to the approval of last week's search warrant at his Florida home. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. Trump took to True Social Monday night, writing, There's no way to justify the unannounced raid of Mar-a-Lago, but in the interest of transparency, I call for the immediate release of the completely unredacted affidavit. Unredacted means an uncensored copy with all the information visible. This comes after the Biden administration asked a federal court to keep the document shielded from the public, arguing that releasing it would harm the government's ongoing criminal investigation. Meanwhile, Trump also said the judge should recuse himself from the case. In other words, he should withdraw himself because of personal bias. In 2017, U.S. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt thanked someone on Twitter who criticized Trump's moral stature. Former federal prosecutor Cash Patel pointed out in his show Cash's Corner last week that Judge Reinhardt had previously recused himself from a Trump-Clinton lawsuit. If he recused himself from that case involving President Trump and the Russiagate hoax and President Trump's attempt to correct civilly the wrongs that were done to him, how can he authorize a search warrant? against President Trump for a possible criminal investigation. Meanwhile, Trump also said the FBI took three of his passports. At least one was expired. It's unclear why the FBI would take them. Legal commentator Kurt Levy, president of the Committee for Justice, told the Epic Times that often during searches, they just grab boxes. Levy said, I don't want to defend what the FBI did so much as just explain that when you're grabbing boxes of stuff, it's unlikely that every item in every box complies with the warrant. And if I remember the warrant language, it was pretty, pretty vague. Levy said no matter what, the government will have to return the passports anyway. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Primaries in Wyoming today. Will Liz Cheney keep her seat in the House? It's unlikely, according to polls. Here are the details. Liz Cheney is projected to lose her bid for a fourth term as Wyoming's lone congressional representative on Tuesday. According to polls, Trump-endorsed Harriet Hageman is likely to take home the nomination. Hageman says that Cheney spends too much time on the January 6th committee. She focuses an awful lot of time on the January 6th committee, but she's not addressing the issues that are important to Wyoming. Some Wyoming Republican voters seem to be upset over Cheney's attacks on former President Trump. Over 70 percent of the state of Wyoming voted Republican in the last presidential election, and she turned right around and voted against us. She was our representative, not her own. Look at this Liz Cheney. Is she Trump traveled to Wyoming over Memorial Day weekend to campaign against Cheney and endorse Hageman. According to a University of Wyoming poll, Hageman leads Cheney 57 percent to 28 percent. 
And of those, 41% say they're voting more against Cheney than for Hageman. Cheney defended her anti-Trump stance in the past, saying she believes in conservative values, not in one single person. We are now embracing a cult of personality, and I won't, uh, I won't be part of that, and, and I will always stand for my oath and stand for the truth. Some Wyoming Republicans say that's exactly why they support her. Liz, I feel like, put herself out there possibly to her own political peril, but her standing up for the truth and the Constitution is what got her my vote. While many Wyoming voters don't support her anymore, Cheney has gained popularity for her criticism of Trump outside of Wyoming. Cheney's campaign appears more oriented to future national ambitions than to winning re-election to Wyoming's House seat. She has done few public events, and the most recent public statement on her campaign website from last week isn't Wyoming-centric. Hagman said in the past that she would visit all 23 Wyoming counties at least once a year if elected. Some 5,000 Texans who use a P.O. box as a voter registration address will likely be able to cast a ballot in the state's midterm elections. A recent state election law prohibits it, but a federal judge just blocked that law. The law attempted to tighten residency guidelines for Texas voters. State Senator Paul Betancourt authored the bill. Earlier this month, he said, quote, there is no one that can live inside a P.O. box. The bill required people registering to vote with a P.O. box to also show proof of address, such as a driver's license or utility bill. The groups who filed the lawsuit called the requirements an unnecessary burden on voters and a form of voter suppression. Betancourt said he expects the number of people using a P.O. box to register could climb. House Republicans are vowing to investigate the Afghanistan withdrawal if the GOP regains the House. In a new report, they detail alleged missteps and misleading claims from the State Department and the White House. Early into his presidency, President Joe Biden carried out a full withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan, where the U.S. fought the Taliban for 20 years. Despite calls from both parties to extend the time window for the withdrawal, Biden moved ahead anyway. The chaotic scenes from the Kabul airport dented Biden's popularity with voters, and a number of Americans were left behind. Republicans allege the Biden administration and the State Department are responsible for the fallout. They say Biden refused to follow advice from senior officials and foreign allies. In a memo responding to the report, the White House denies the claims and says the withdrawal was almost unavoidable due to a deal President Trump signed earlier. And as we approach the anniversary of the deadly and chaotic withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan, we hear from a human rights advocate who held office in the country. As a woman and a member of the Hazara ethnic group, she shares her firsthand experience of the oppression many people face under the Taliban. Joining us now to discuss human rights in Afghanistan is Azra Jafari, who is the country's first female mayor. Pleasure speaking with you, Azra. Uh, thank you so much uh, to invite me, and I'm I'm pleasure to talk to you too. It's been about a year since U.S. forces withdrew from Afghanistan. What is the status of women's rights in the country under Taliban rule right now? Uh, unfortunately, uh, I think everybody uh, during this uh, one year, everybody uh, see what happened about the hu- uh, human rights, especially women and girls' rights in Afghanistan. And uh, after one year, we think a woman in Afghanistan, that is 50% of population of Afghanistan, now they are in prison. And because they cannot go to work, they cannot uh, go to school, they can, even they cannot uh, go out of home, uh, certain of mileage, like five, 
five miles or uh, 15, uh, 15 or 20 miles without any uh, male uh, relatives. So this means it is they are uh, actually they are under prison, and then uh, um, and then even. They, they have some uh, protest against their right, but uh, you, you know the uh, Taliban they uh, arrested them and then they tortured them and then they, they treat them to the stay at home. That is very concerning how you liken their situation to being in prison. Now you co-authored the Constitution of Afghanistan and the Taliban revised it. How is their version different from your draft? Uh, you know. Um, when we work for the uh, Constitution of Afghanistan, um, we try to uh, bring some uh, very positive changes that every single people in Afghanistan, they saw themselves inside this Constitution. Men and women, it, they was equal in that Constitution. And minorities, religious, every people who lives in Afghanistan, they have the same right in that Constitution. And then they have to respect to each other. But unfortunately, now the Taliban, they don't accept this Constitution because uh, they don't believe to women rights. They don't believe to the minority and religious uh, 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 minority group and ethnicity groups in Afghanistan and trying to keep just in one uh, uh, religious and one uh, one ethnicities in Afghanistan, and they're trying all these days, years uh, in past twelve months. We can see how they reacted with with the other minorities and especially women and girls in Afghanistan. I see how your version was more fair and inclusive, according to what you're saying. Now, the United States announced thirty million dollars as a commitment to women's and girls' rights in Afghanistan. What's your reaction to this? I think uh, United States before they they send or they they take action for this 30 million dollar. First, they have make a plan or mechanism for Afghanistan how they have to you know bring out this over 30 million of uh, Afghan people from this humanitarian crisis. This is it is not acceptable for Af for women who they, so they send that money for who. For what kind of activities? Who will be spend this money, and with what, with with kind of uh, a mechanism? So this is, I think, it is a little challenges. So when when you give this money to the Taliban, it means you recognize Taliban regime as as a government in Afghanistan. That women they don't accept it. Fifty percent of uh, this population they don't accept the Taliban uh, as a government. Certainly sounds like a very challenging situation for women in the country. Azra Jafari, Afghanistan's first female mayor, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. An article published by the World Economic Forum is causing controversy. In it, the author proposed using artificial intelligence to censor hateful content online. Here are the details. The World Economic Forum, or WEF, published an opinion article by writer and cybersecurity expert Imbal Goldberger last week. It's about solving online abuse. It proposes combining a powerful AI network with input from human intelligence data to track and preemptively stop certain content from circulating online. Goldberger wrote, while the internet played a vital role in how these events were perceived, other changes like the radicalization of extreme opinions, the spread of misinformation, and the wide reach of child sexual abuse material have been enabled by it. The author explained the AI would be used to detect extremism, disinformation, and hate speech. 
The proposed program would be supplemented by off-platform human intelligence gathering. The article has faced widespread criticism on conservative news sites. The Daily Caller pointed out that social media companies are known to target conservative content online. These include posts critical of gender ideology, climate issues, COVID-19 policies, and vaccine safety. In response to the backlash, the WEF added a note to readers at the top of the page. It reads, Please be aware that this article has been shared on websites that routinely misrepresent content and spread misinformation. The content of this article is the opinion of the author, not the World Economic Forum. And please read the piece for yourself. Just ahead, sweeping changes to the CDC's guidelines for COVID-19. The agency relaxes quarantine rules, citing high population immunity, but the timing of the move is being brought into question. We hear from an expert for details in just a minute here on NTD News. First Lady Jill Biden is positive for COVID-19. According to a White House statement, she started to show cold-like symptoms Monday night. Although she tested negative on a rapid test, a second PCR test came back positive. The First Lady is fully vaccinated and double boosted. She'll be taking Paxlovid and is isolating from her staff and others for at least five days. The CDC is overhauling its guidelines surrounding COVID-19. Next, we bring you an expert who focuses on evidence-based medicine to offer his perspective. The doctor is also a former World Health Organization consultant. Please welcome Dr. Paul Alexander, who's an epidemiologist and former senior advisor to the Department of Health and Human Services to discuss the new CDC guidelines. Good morning. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure for, NTD, for you to have me again. Thank you. Absolutely. The CDC is now saying the U.S. should start to move away from quarantines and social distancing and shift toward treating severe disease caused by the virus. How significant is this milestone? Uh, well, I think this is a profound step by the CDC. And basically, CDC has, has been out of step and they have made some serious blunders across the last two years with its guidance. And I think now it's trying to correct it and it's doing it in a sort of a way piecemeal. Day by day, they're making changes. And what we are seeing is that they're trying to align themselves with what we said from day one. We told CDC, NIH, WHO, persons like myself, Gupta, Kuldorf, Bhattacharya, Scott Atlas, that COVID was amenable to risk stratification out of the box. So we're talking about April 2020. That means your baseline risk predicted your outcome. And that meant that there was a risk, age risk stratified approach that we could have taken, that we did not need to carte blanche, lock the society down, close schools, mass mandates, close businesses, that we can go towards the high risk groups, strongly protect the vulnerable in a society and allow the rest of society to live largely normal lives with reasonable precautions. CDC is trying to get there now and we applaud them for that, but it's, it's, it's a bit late, too late because many people have suffered. Many lives have been lost due to the lockdowns. And I have to be clear about that. The school closures, the lockdowns caused a lot of harms and actual deaths. So this reversal comes at a time when the CDC is citing high population immunity, and that's basically coming from vaccination and previous infection. Can you give us an idea as to how much of the population is immune at this point? Well, look, the reality is I don't buy what the CDC is saying about immunity from vaccination. And uh, I'll give you an example. I believe in February of this year, the CDC itself did its own survey 
and came up with a figure of 75% roughly of children, young children who already had some serological evidence of immunity. That was in February. We've been arguing since then that that actually is about 95%. We argue most, if not all, children, young people, and the society. And um, uh, again, it goes back to what we were trying to say. From the very beginning, we argued that you allow the population to live normal lives and face the pathogen, and the young children, the young persons, the healthy, the well in society would confront, face the pathogen, develop natural immunity, and get to some level of population herd immunity. So to say that uh, they are changing their guidance because we have vaccine immunity and uh, population immunity, we always knew that we were, we were there even before this vaccine was rolled out. So again, it's actually nonsensical to somebody like myself. And um, we applaud CDC steps, but it's way too late. Dr. Alexander, I see you're pointing out the timing of this reversal. Now, how can people get a hold of you? Thanks for asking me that. Um, I can be reached at uh, drpaulalexander.com. That's my website. And uh, I also run a substack that I produce. I publish science, all of the COVID science daily to inform the public. And it's free. You can subscribe if you want, but it's available for free. Epidemiologist Dr. Paul Alexander, pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you very much, sir. More than 80 children recovered in a child sex trafficking crackdown by the FBI. Authorities say agents found 84 victims during a two-week nationwide initiative this month called Operation Cross Country. The average age of the children is around 15 years old. The youngest victim is just 11. The FBI also located 37 missing children and 141 adult victims of human trafficking. Officials say they've identified or arrested 85 suspects. And now over in Pennsylvania, the state's education department recently encouraged students to use gender-neutral pronouns at school. A school board member and a charter school director in the state speak with NTD on this issue. Earlier this month, the Pennsylvania Department of Education encouraged students to use gender-neutral pronouns and introduce lesson plans on gender theory. They say this is to reduce bullying. Rayanne Hofkin, a member of the Upper Perkiomen School Board, tells NTD that she disagrees with the decision. I think just teaching the reading, writing, arithmetic, and, and staying out of the social issues. It's kids, are, kids should be allowed to be kids, and it shouldn't be, kids should not be the pawns in a political battle going back and forth. Mm -hmm. We're only confusing our children. Hofkin questions why the education department doesn't focus on teaching children to be kind to each other rather than teaching them to pick a pronoun. She says bullying needs to be stopped, but she doesn't believe this new policy will stop it. It's um, bullying people into pretending that there are more than two genders um, doesn't curb bullying. And um, you can't model the exact behavior in the name of stopping the bullying behavior. It's um, one thing to be supportive of students who are questioning their identity, but um, lesson plans for all students, that's just ridiculous. Um, just these types of conversations should be between the parent and, and their child. Jennifer McFarland, director of Avon Grove Charter School, agrees. She tells NTD that a child's brain is not developed enough at this stage in life, and gender theory will only confuse them. So we are giving these concepts to kids, these gender theory, discussing, you know, your pronouns, um, asking if you like boys or girls. 
when at ages that are completely inappropriate because the child literally, literally, physiologically, emotionally cannot process this information. And we're doing it not only at the elementary level under the guise of anti-bullying, but we're doing it at the secondary level much more open. The Pennsylvania Department of Education updated its website on resources for gender and gender identity. The website differentiates between biological sex and gender identity, saying gender identity is how we feel in our hearts and minds. The departments maintain that the policy is to promote fairness and inclusion. The nationwide school bus driver shortage is creating some challenges as students head back to school. St. Louis Public Schools says more than 3,000 students will have to start the year without busing. They're offering a $75 weekly gas card to families with elementary school kids to offset gas costs. High school students can get a Metro bus pass. Missouri isn't the only state coming up with ways to solve the bus driver shortage problem. Alaska, Arizona, Georgia, and Connecticut are all currently trying to solve staffing issues as well. A legendary police veteran is sworn in as commissioner of the Boston Police Department. He was once brutally beaten by fellow officers while pursuing a suspect in plain clothes. After working as police chief in Ann Arbor, he's now returning home to Boston. Michael Cox's swearing-in ceremony was held this week at City Hall Plaza in Boston. The veteran thanked his family and friends who supported him through the ordeal. Cox served as a member of the Boston Police Department for three decades. There, he was once attacked by co-workers who mistook him for a fleeing suspect. He suffered head injuries and kidney damage as a result. For a period after the attack, he also says the officers tried to cover it up. At the ceremony, Cox said he will work to ensure that no one else is a victim of unconstitutional policing, regardless of their color, gender, or race. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu has praised him as the leader that the city of Boston deserves. A Florida police officer is critically wounded after a car chase Monday night. The suspect involved was killed in an exchange of gunfire while fleeing a reported armed robbery in Miami-Dade County. The suspect smashed his vehicle into a police cruiser and another car and died at the scene. The officer is hospitalized in critical condition. An unknown number of occupants from the car that was struck are hospitalized in stable condition. No other information is immediately available. It's approaching peak hurricane season in the Atlantic, and Florida's top energy provider is ready to launch a powerful new technology to help. It's a new drone designed to fly into tropical storms. Here's a spokesperson with Florida Power and Light. Many times, electric utilities will spend hours, if not really days, just trying to assess what's happened. We do it now in minutes and hours with technology like this drone. We would pre-deploy this equipment and put it into you know, a category rated type of hangar so it's safe and then as soon as a storm passes, we would take it out and fly it over the damaged area so we quickly get an assessment. So then they get that information, our engineers quickly analyze it and we're able to then roll trucks and crews to where they're needed rather than going out and trying to figure out what's going on. FPL Air One resembles a small plane and is remotely operated. It can capture images and video of damaged electrical equipment and send them in real time to the command center. It can fly up to a thousand miles at a time, enough to cover the length of Florida twice. While satellites need sunny days to document damage, drones can fly under the cloud cover. The new drone can also fly in much rougher weather than ordinary drones and can remain airborne for 22 hours without refueling. 
Emergency drone technology showed its potential after Hurricane Irma hit Florida in 2017. The energy provider was able to restore power to more than 2 million customers within 24 hours with the help of a smaller, less advanced drone. A metal object believed to have fallen from a transatlantic jet came crashing down outside the Maine State House, landing with a loud bang just feet from a Capitol Police worker. The Federal Aviation Administration was alerted and returned to the State House on Monday as it investigated the object. The metal hit echoed with a loud bang on a slab of granite, lining a cobblestone walkaway about six to eight feet from a security screener. The object came close to hitting the building itself. No one was hurt. The FAA believes the metal sleeve weighing six to seven pounds came from a wing flap of a large passenger jet. Airlines were notified and all planes landed safely that day. The area where the airplane part crashed to the ground is usually busy when the main legislature is in session and it's routinely used for rallies, protests and press conferences. Two million baby rockers are being recalled. The rockers involved are Mama Roo Swings and Rockaroo Rockers, both sold under the brand name Four Moms. The good news is there's an easy fix. The issue is they have restraint straps that can hang down when not in use. Children who are able to crawl can get entangled in those straps if they crawl under the rocker. One 10-month-old has died from such an incident, and another sustained bruising around his neck. Anyone who owns one of the impacted products can get a free strap fastener to keep their restraints away from crawling children. The Consumer Product Safety Commission has instructions on its website to identify rockers involved in the recall. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, secret research on one of the world's deadliest viruses from inside China's most controversial lab. A scientist testifies about his findings and how Canada is involved. And Japan's prime minister vows no more war during a memorial ceremony of Japan's World War II surrender. He says instead, Japan will work with the international community to resolve world challenges. Stay tuned for more in just a minute here on NTD News. Good to have you back. The United States military carries out an intercontinental ballistic missile test. The test was delayed during the Chinese regime's show of force near Taiwan earlier this month. A U.S. military statement says the test of the Minuteman III missile shows, quote, the readiness of U.S. nuclear forces and provides confidence in the lethality and effectiveness of the nation's nuclear deterrent. The military says about 300 such tests have occurred before, and this one is not in reaction to any specific global event. Another test of the Minuteman III missile was canceled in April. That delay aimed to lower nuclear tensions with Russia during the ongoing war in Ukraine. The nuclear-capable Minuteman III is made by Boeing and is key to the U.S. military's strategic arsenal. The missile launches from an underground silo. It has a range of 6,000-plus miles and can travel at a speed of approximately 15,000 miles per hour. That's about Mach 20, or 20 times the speed of sound. South Korea's defense ministry says South Korea and the United States are to resume joint military drills fully next week with the goal of normalizing and rebuilding the joint exercises. 
The Old Chief Freedom Shield exercise is set to last through the end of August to September 1st. It will be the country's two countries' biggest combined training exercise in years. The South Korean Defense Ministry deputy spokesperson says the drills are, quote, of great significance in rebuilding the Korea-U.S. alliance and solidifying the joint defense posture. The exercise has historically focused on computer simulations, but the ministry says this year they'll practice outdoors as well. The two sides have scaled back combined military drills in recent years due to COVID-19 and efforts to lower tensions with North Korea. The North Korean regime has said the exercises are a rehearsal for an invasion. A Chinese military survey ship has docked at a seaport in Sri Lanka. The move is drawing concern from neighboring India and the international community. Named Yuan Wang 5, the ship is one of the latest Chinese space tracking ships. It can monitor satellites, rockets, and intercontinental ballistic missiles. It's docked at a Chinese-built port near the main shipping route between Asia and Europe. Sri Lanka is currently in the middle of a severe economic crisis. Among the island nation's biggest allies are China and India, but India has voiced concern that China could use the port as a military base. A Sri Lankan cabinet spokesman said the country has been trying to keep both neighbors from further developing tensions. An American scientist says he found that a lab in Wuhan, China, researched a virus far more deadly than the Chinese Communist Party or CCP virus, which causes COVID-19. Here's more. The CCP virus has taken over 6 million lives around the globe in two years. The Chinese lab is called the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It has been at the center of a massive debate on whether it had leaked the virus. That question aside, an American scientist says he's caught the lab doing research on one of the deadliest viruses in the world, called the Nipah virus. That was in late 2019, before the COVID-19 pandemic broke out. Compared to the CCP virus, the Nipah virus is less transmissible, but it's 60 times deadlier. The scientist, Dr. Stephen Quay, testified about his findings in a Senate hearing. You said, uh, I think in your testimony, this is the most dangerous research that that you have ever encountered. Um, What makes this particular research so dangerous? (laughs) If you're doing experiments with a pathogen that is 60% lethal but is not airborne, and you make it airborne in the laboratory, and someone walks out with it. Nipah has a 21-day incubation period. It's perfect for for widespread spread uh, without being detected. Uh, We couldn't afford 60 We can't afford 10% lethality. The Wuhan lab was reportedly conducting the kind of research that could redesign the Nipah virus. They're manipulating it, which is not allowed by biological treaties. In addition, the Wuhan lab didn't process the research in a facility that meets the highest level of biosafety requirements. Dr. Kui said he was able to detect what went on in the Wuhan lab because of a massive amount of raw data made public by the lab. That information involved a different research project. But Kui was able to detect what other research the lab was doing through forensic analysis. Kui's discovery comes as China just discovered a new virus called the Langya-Hennepa virus. This new infection is closely related to the Nipah virus and is already spreading. Chinese media outlets say over 30 people in northern China have been infected. Experts believe the infection is lethal, but Chinese authorities have not reported any deaths. Back to the Nipah virus of the Wuhan lab, the discovery is raising concerns in Canada. 
The Wuhan lab got Nipper virus samples from Canada's National Microbiology Laboratory, or NML. Last year, some Canadian lawmakers asked why the facility sent Nipah virus samples to the Wuhan lab. Its scientific director general responded that the Canadian lab sent samples to China after being promised that no gain-of-function research would take place. That type of research involves altering a virus to change or enhance its biological functions. A Chinese scientist named Chiu Xiangguo arranged the sample shipment. She was working with NML at the time. Months later, Chiu was fired from the lab and arrested. The Canadian government refused to say why, citing national security concerns. The Japanese Prime Minister made a major promise on the anniversary of Japan's World War II surrender on Monday. He vowed that his country would never again wage war. Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida vowed that his country would never again wage war on the anniversary of the country's World War II surrender. Kishida's pledge was delivered at a national memorial service on Monday, attended by the emperor and 592 family members of victims of the conflict. We will never again repeat the horrors of war. I will continue to live up to this determined oath. In a world where conflicts are still unabated, Japan, under the banner of proactive pacifism, will do its utmost to work together with the international community to resolve the various challenges facing the world. The anniversary of Japan's surrender is traditionally also marked by visits to Tokyo's Yasukuni Shrine. It is seen by South Korea and China as a symbol of Japan's past militarism. Kishida faced a tricky balancing act, hoping to avoid irking neighbours while keeping happy the members of his conservative Liberal Democrat Party. According to Japanese news agency Kyodo, Kishida sent an offering to the shrine without visiting, as he did during recent festivals at the shrine. But unlike his predecessor Yoshihide Suga, an abbe in 2020, Kishida made an oblique reference to Japan's wartime actions, saying the lessons of history are graven deeply on our hearts. Coming up, fresh shelling near Europe's biggest nuclear plant has reignited concerns. Ukraine calls for new sanctions on Russia, highlighting the risk of a catastrophe at the plant. And Russia unveils a physical model of its new space station. The nation may abandon the International Space Station altogether. Stay tuned for more in just a minute. Ukraine is calling for new sanctions on Russia. They're highlighting the risk of a catastrophe at Europe's biggest nuclear plant. Fresh shelling nearby has reignited a blame game between both sides. Ukraine's president called for new sanctions against Russia on Monday as he warned of the consequences of a potential catastrophe at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. Shelling near the plant, Europe's largest, has caused widespread alarm with the world nuclear watchdog warning that there could be a disaster if the fighting does not stop. New satellite imagery released by Planet Labs purports to show the aftermath of shelling near the plant which Russia seized in March. Ukrainian and Russian-installed officials have traded accusations over who is responsible for the attacks. In a late-night Monday address, Vladimir Zelensky called for Russia's nuclear sector to be sanctioned. If Russia's actions lead to a catastrophe, the consequences may hit those who yet remain silent. 
Meanwhile, a Russian-backed court in Ukraine's Donetsk charged five Europeans on Monday with being mercenaries. The men from Britain, Croatia and Sweden were captured while fighting with Ukrainian forces. Russian media reports that three of them could face the death penalty. All have pleaded not guilty. Foreign governments have dismissed the trials as illegitimate. In June, three other foreign nationals were sentenced to death on similar charges. Russian President Vladimir Putin is seeking closer ties with North Korea. In a letter to North Korean leader Kim Jong-un this week, Putin wrote that the two countries should work together to expand bilateral relations. He argued that such efforts would promote security and stability on the Korean peninsula and in Northeast Asia. According to North Korean state media, Kim replied that the friendship between the two countries has developed since World War II and their strategic cooperation has reached a new level. The media reported that he said their common goal is to thwart the military threat posed by so-called hostile forces. Kim didn't specify what the hostile forces are, but North Korea has accused the U.S. and its allies of pursuing a hostile policy, especially in regards to preventing North Korea's nuclear program. And Russia on Monday unveiled a physical model of its new space station. This could suggest that Russia is serious about abandoning the International Space Station and going it alone on space exploration. Russia's national space agency, Roscosmos, presented a model of the planned space station at a military-industrial exhibition outside Moscow on Monday. Russian state media dubbed the model Ross. The head of Roscosmos has said Russia will quit the International Space Station after 2024 and is working to develop its own orbital station. Roscosmos said in a statement that the new space station would be launched in two phases but didn't give any dates. Designs for some of the new station already exist, but they're still being drawn up for other sections. Russia has been quickly working to reduce its dependence on Western nations since the war with Ukraine began and amid historic sanctions imposed by the West. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, French farmers are beating the drought by growing more sorghum. The resilient plant can survive where wheat can't. It requires no irrigation and no pesticides. And a rare piece of Australia's World War II history preserved underground. The site recently turned 80 years old and opened as a museum. Find out more right here on NTD News. Welcome back. Corn plants near Paris are stunted, and the soil from harvested wheat fields is bone dry. But on one unique plot, the leaves are green, and the plants are thriving. You're looking at pictures of a wheat field and sorghum field, taken on the same day from the same region in France. But while the soil of harvested wheat fields is bone dry due to the extreme heat of 2022, on the sorghum plot, the leaves are green and the plants carry a full ear of grains. The sorghum fields belong to Uda Kut, who's been beating the heat with the drought-tolerant plant. The cultivation of sorghum is attractive because it brings about a new cultivation, a new way of thinking about agriculture, moving more towards a sustainable agriculture that preserves future resources. Sorghum is a cereal that is little known in Europe, but used widely in other parts of the world, and can be an ingredient for gluten-free baking, couscous, or even beer. 
Kut says the advantages of sorghum are that in much of France it does not need to be irrigated, requires no pesticides, and needs only a third of the fertilizer that wheat requires. It's not a miracle solution, but it is a solution which, among many others, makes it possible to improve things, to consume less plant protection products, to consume less fertilizer, and above all, preserve groundwater and water resources. But sorghum isn't totally immune to drought. Coote expects to harvest three to four tons per hectare this year, compared to five or six during a normal year. But he says the fact that this yield requires no irrigation is a competitive advantage, as drought is felt across France, with restrictions on access to water. To make his farm more sustainable, Coot has invested in his own stone mill. It turns part of his crop into gluten-free sorghum flour. The rest is sold as grains, which can be cooked and eaten like lentils. And more farmers are turning to this crop. French sorghum production grew to nearly 440,000 tons in 2021, up from 270,000 tons in 2016. That's according to Farm Ministry data. But gluten-free sorghum is still a niche market in Europe. EU data show that only about a quarter of the crop produced across the continent goes to human consumption. The rest goes to animal feed. Coote is working hard to find new markets for their crop. He plans to work with local partners to develop sorghum beer, vegetarian steaks, and other products in the coming years. A European river dries up in the drought and exposes rocks with centuries-old engravings. They may indicate continued tough times ahead for the region. These stones are known as hunger stones. One of these stones lies on the banks of the Elbe River. It flows from the Czech Republic through Germany. The stone dates back to the 17th century. It bears a warning in German, meaning, if you see me, then weep. On it are also engraved a dozen years in history when droughts have occurred. The initials of the authors have been lost over time. These landmark stones were last surfaced during the 2018 dry spell. According to the European Drought Observatory, about half of Europe is now under a drought warning, and this drought might last for three more months. A little-known part of Australia's World War II history recently celebrated its 80th anniversary. An underground wartime hospital recently opened its doors as a museum. Let's take a look. A tiny doorway leading to a remarkable part of Australia's wartime history. The underground hospital was built in response to the bombing of Darwin um, in 1942. The Japanese military began an air raid on the port of Darwin in northern Australia in February of 1942. Often called Australia's Pearl Harbor, it was the largest attack by a foreign power on Australian soil. The Japanese were able to inflict heavy losses. Locals of Mount Isa in the state of Queensland feared they'd be bombed next due to the region's rich mineral deposits. Lead and, and Mount Isa was very significant for the war effort. So they decided, a group of people, to ask the mines to build a air raid shelter come hospital in the hill. Carved into the hills of Mount Isa, the underground hospital wasn't needed during the war and instead became a storeroom and a dormitory for nurses. In the years after the war, the site began degrading until the local community saw the historic value in it and decided to preserve its history. It took them many years of um, restoration work down there, going through all the floor debris, um, cleaning it up. As Australia's only underground hospital and an unusual relic of World War II, volunteers guide about 8,000 people through the attraction every tourist season. 
One tourist shared her thoughts after visiting the site. What they've done is incredibly valuable to understand how threatened they felt during the war. The site will be preserved for generations to come. Just ahead, a team of Ukrainian soldiers trains in the UK ahead of the Warrior Games in the US. But most will return to the war once the competition is over. Learn more in just a minute here on NTD News. A team of Ukrainian soldiers is training in the UK ahead of a competition in the US. The athletes can focus on their workouts away from the war, but most will return to the conflict once the competition is over. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. Ukrainians are preparing for the Warrior Games. It's an event where injured veterans and soldiers still in service compete. Yevon Oleksenko is a Ukrainian lieutenant competing in weightlifting. Less than a month ago, he was on the front line with 100 soldiers under his command. It would be easier for me to take part in combat actions than in sports competitions. But despite everything, we have a particular function here, representing our country. In April, Oleksenko's head and leg were wounded by a tank shell. He received surgery and was hospitalized for a month. But it wasn't his first injury. He's been fighting in the Donetsk region since 2015. We need not only to adequately represent Ukraine at the sports level, but also to remind the world about the war in Ukraine, that we exist, that we need assistance, aid and help, because our country stands in defense of the entire Western world and civilization and the civilized world of our planet in general. Artem Lukashuk is a Ukrainian airborne soldier. He competes in wheelchair basketball, sitting volleyball and shooting. I have a wife, Karina, and a son, Yehor. When the full-scale war started, I sent my wife and son to Lithuania with my service brother. Ina Dragunchuk, Deputy Minister of Veteran Affairs, helped me in this matter. That is why my family is there now. But they miss Ukraine and want to return home soon, because they miss their relatives. Lukashuk endured shrapnel wounds in 2014, leading to a ruptured eardrum and damaged nerves in his right foot. It is always cool to tell other countries about the situation in Ukraine. This is all for our country to receive more aid and weapons. Even if we are not in Ukraine, we still try to help, at least by spreading information about the situation in our country. You can say that we are now more diplomats than athletes, but we still want to win and bring medals home. The athletes will fly to Orlando on August 17th. That's where the Warrior Games will be held from August 19th through the 28th. Out of the 33 athletes, 27 will return to the front line once they're back in Ukraine. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. With the UK sweltering under a heat wave, pro chess players embraced an unusual method for beating the heat. London hosted the Dive Chess World Championships on Sunday. It's just like normal chess, except it's played underwater. Dive chess is played in a swimming pool with a submerged chessboard and magnetic pieces. Each player has to hold their breath while making their move. Once they need to come up for air, it's their opponent's turn. Ten players took part in the championships held at the Leonardo Royal Hotel Pool in Tower Bridge. The event lasted for four hours. After four rounds of play, a 33-year-old man from Poland claimed victory. The unusual championships are the brainchild of American chess master Eitan Ilfeld. He started playing chess when he was four years old and began competing in tournaments at the age of 10. 
He says he came up with the idea of dive chess because he thought it would be interesting to incorporate a physical element into the strategy game. What you tell yourself is more powerful than you might think. How can we use it for good? Here's NTD's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body, bringing us insight into the power of story. Most of us don't know how powerful our internal stories can be in our lives. That small voice within has become second nature to us. Often we don't even notice if these mind stories are helpful or a hindrance. In a nutshell, what you tell yourself about your experience becomes your reality. Let's dive a little deeper. Does your internal story affect your feelings around some of these issues? Resentment towards a loved one, guilt about what you have or haven't done, being overwhelmed by all those jobs piling up, being anxious about the uncertainty in the world, being stuck in old habits, avoiding a difficult task and being bored or lonely. No one else makes us feel this way. It's our internal stories that do. For example, if someone asks you, would you like some of this salad I'm making? Your response could be, grateful because you recognize their generosity and kindness and the health properties of the food or maybe feeling hurt because your internal narrative reminds you this person frequently criticized your weight or diet resentful because you know they don't do salads or you're disappointed because it isn't a hamburger and fries your internal narrative shaped any one of these responses our attention is distracted by social media, world politics, our work or what's happening locally. If you regularly meditate or exercise, these events may not get you down. Or you may be overwhelmed by it all and your story confirms this. I invite you to reflect. How is your story keeping you stuck? For instance, your relationship with others, your attitude to food, exercise, self-care, meditation, work and play. Is there room for improvement? You can completely change how you feel about these things. This is the key takeaway. Try to identify the story that keeps you in the same old patterns. Use a new story as a tool for change. Some know this as affirmations. The act of reflection is a powerful go-between in recognizing your negatives and turning them into positives. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.